On this week's podcast, we're going to be talking to a student loan expert who has been helping some of you work through some more complex student loan issues and optimizing payoffs there. But before we do that, I wanted to jump into a couple of changes that might be coming down the pipeline that could affect accredited investors out there. First off, the House Ways and Means Committee voted on a bipartisan basis, 40 to 3, to move the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act to the House floor for a vote. This new law, if passed, will reinstate 100% bonus depreciation. Yay! Which currently is phased out through 2027. So this is a big boost for you commercial real estate investors out there doing cost segregations or a syndication passive investor. If you recall back in 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act allow companies and investors to write off 100% of the value of the assets purchased with less than a 20-year life. Or as I say, the rule of thumb is to write off a third of the asset value in that first year. Now, this law went into effect with a plan phase-out beginning in 2023, where 80% was allowed and going down 20% each year, putting it at zero in 2027. This deduction allowed businesses and real estate investors to shield their income while they invested assets to grow. If this is going over your head right now, guys, get with the program. Go to thewealthelevator.com slash tax. Send our team an email on a couple of videos on the subject on cost segregation and recapture. But if you're totally aware of this, you're probably jumping for joy and really crossing your fingers. And you know what? I actually think this one is going to pass. It's an election year. The Democrats want to pass through that silly child tax credit thing that really isn't going to move the needle much for anybody in terms of their finances, but it may get them a little bit more momentum in terms of the polls getting reelected. But back to why it means so much for us. Cost segregation studies will do them to identify assets in properties for properties undergoing renovation to write off immediately, giving investors extensive first-year losses on their K-1s to shield ordinary income if they're doing real estate professional status. Now, what I've seen time and time again is a lot of you guys discount that you cannot do real estate professional status where we just have to connect you with the right CPA and work your story. Now, again, this law is far from passing. Also, the bill would be funded by reducing the controversial employee reduction tax credit payouts currently going through corporations related to hiring during COVID three years ago that and when I took advantage of. I didn't take it, but I saw a lot of people just really over aggressively taking advantage of that thing. And in this bill that is going through now, it seems to be something for everybody, meaning both the left and the right. And this is where you know, if you're new to this world, every time they create these bills, they name it some ridiculous thing that sounds really cool, that Congress is doing everybody a, a solid. But what we as sophisticated investors do is look for small things like that are thrown in and try to capitalize and move ourselves and our investments personally to benefit the most from it. Now, this one's retroactive. So if you were in a deal last year, the way it's supposed to work in its current creation right now, of course, it could change is that you could retroactively go back to last year where you got 80% write-offs. This could mean that those of you guys who went in on the ATM fund deal last year and expecting 80% write-offs there could be going back up to 100% 
And we, again, we're doing the ATM fund again this year. If that's new to you, you don't know how to use the passive losses from that. Let us know. We can book a call with you. But we were expecting that to be a little bit less at 60% this year. But if this gets passed, that is a huge thing for investors in there. Now, the other thing that is going through Congress in terms of laws being passed is the whole accredited investor definition put out there by the SEC. It's pretty much been the same since 1982. And it's not adjusting for inflation, one would think. But maybe, thankfully, they aren't doing this because if it was, the bar would be actually set way, way higher than it it is today. Now, the talk is that the SEC may triple the requirements for net worth and income. And that means that you would need like a net worth of over $3 million or an income of $600,000 to $900,000 to qualify. Man, this would shake up a lot of investors' dreams, especially with single-family homes really not working anymore. Last time I checked, those turnkey providers were selling $180,000 properties for about $1,500 a month rent. You're an accredited investor out there. Get after it. Get your net worth high. Get it to four or five million dollars so you can hit endgame. Of course, this is just you know conjecture that this happens all the time. I suspect, though, that there would be some general movement to a higher number in the long term, at least maybe just simply adjusting for inflation. But I'll let you guys know if I hear anything more about it. Now, fair warning, here's a little bit of a rant that's coming up. Today, we mostly work with accredited investors in our opportunities. You know, Talking the other day about people who live in Hawaii. Hawaii has not the best economy. You know, there's not very many multiple six-figure professionals other than, of course, your dentists, your doctors. And I asked the question, like, how can a family make it here? Essentially, everybody that's moving to Hawaii is just displacing the people that are moving to lower cost areas like Las Vegas or Washington or California. And I couldn't think of an answer. If you have a family here in Hawaii and you don't have one of those amazing six-figure jobs, one of those amazing that you went to college and went to a lot of student debt to get, I mean, you probably are making somewhere in the hundred to $150,000 a year range. And maybe if you get lucky and your parents pass you down a million dollar or $1.5 million house, you know, still you better hope you're not having more than one sibling to cut that pie with. And then you're down to less than $700,000. Now you may not be from Hawaii. So the, Numbers I'm talking about may be different, but in essence, I think that it's getting harder and harder for the next generation to make it. And maybe this is a good transition into the topic that we're talking about today, which is student loans. But it makes me really frustrated. And there is a big gap in terms of the wealth equality. I've always been one to fight for folks like myself. Again, I was never poor. I had we you know we had money, went to school, we worked hard. But it's that middle class that's shrinking and becoming the lower middle class here soon if you don't do anything different out of the ordinary, which is getting into alternative investments, getting the passive losses, strategically working the IRS tax code put out there to incentivize you to invest in the right things, to pay less taxes, and then to implement a little bit of infinite banking on the side. Unless you do this, you're going to fall to being in the lower middle class. 
So I'll write more about this in the weekly newsletter. If you guys want access to that and other exclusive content, you go to thewealthelevator.com slash club and enjoy this week's show. We have Jan Miller from the Student Loan Consultant. We had him on the podcast in the past. If you guys want to check that out, Google his name in our archives. But this podcast is going to be pretty short and it's going to be more specifically targeted on how do you get approved for a home loan mortgage despite having a large student loan debt? Just a little icebreaker. I don't have any student loans anymore because I guess I was a bonehead and I paid mine off. <laughs> so I heard, uh, this is like months ago, that the government's paying people's student loans off. What the heck? Well, yeah, yeah. So in a number of different ways, but the one that gets to the media attention right now would be the ten or $20,000 Biden-Harris loan forgiveness, which is a unilateral forgiveness that a majority of borrowers qualify for. And the way it works is if your incomes are under certain thresholds, basically 125000 per year individually or jointly, 250000 if you're married. And if you have, if you also had Pell Grants, you'll get $20,000 forgiven or if you have less than 20000 up to that amount. If you don't have Pell Grants, then you'll get 10000 if you meet those thresholds. Now, yeah, they're back when they first announced this, there was a, on the studentaid.gov, you could go in and actually apply for it. It was very simple. You didn't even have to log in. Seven questions, basically name, address, social, and so forth. And it would automatically put you, qualify you for this, for the 10,000 in forgiveness. But they put it on pause when, of course, there was, were legal challenges. But now it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court and we're waiting for the Supreme Court to decide, which is supposed to happen in June, at which point if they uphold it, then everybody gets their Ten or 20000 depending on what they qualify for. And that money will just be deducted from your balance. And that would be this. And the, that kind of has dictated a little bit when the pandemic forbearance ends too, which is, of course, the forbearance that prevents payments from being required or from any interest that accrues throughout the pandemic. And they keep pushing that back. There's been like eight extensions on it. And the latest extension is really due to give the borrowers a chance to receive the forgiveness first before they actually have to start making payments. So once the Supreme Court decides and whether or not we actually are going to receive that forgiveness, then payments will likely resume after that. But this is only 10, 12 grand? Is that, I thought it was 10 like 20, a lot. 10 to 20,000. Now that's for the Biden-Harris forgiveness. Now there's also been the what's called the PSLF or Public Service Law Forgiveness Waiver. And the IDR waiver, which is income driven or payment waiver and the one time adjustment. And what those do is allow borrowers to, who didn't qualify for the program or weren't properly enrolled in the program in the past to count older payments towards qualifying total. So if you'd worked for 10 years in a nonprofit and because of some technical nuance, you didn't qualify, which happened to a lot of people. So it's a complicated program. Those people are now allowed. As long as they work full-time for a nonprofit or government agency, they were allowed to count that time period. And what it did is result in a number of people getting immediate forgiveness. And in the neighborhood, I've had clients as much as $700,000 in student loan debt forgiven under the public service loan forgiveness. Waiver. Okay. So that's the one like work in like an underserved area for 10 years or essentially be a teacher. You know, or any nonprofit, yeah. 50% of my clients are physicians. And if they work directly for the hospital or university, then they qualify for the program. And as they well. get all their undergrad, graduate, and med school 
everything that's left after they meet the 10 year criteria. Okay. They'll have to make 10 years of qualified payments and then uh, that overlap at the time frame that they work for a nonprofit full time and then they can get the loan forgiven. But a lot of people have put in the 10 years already, but for various reasons, they did, they got knocked out technically from qualified. For example, they were in the wrong program. They, or they were in a forbearance. For example, just to use residents as an example for attending physicians, they, a lot of them have the opportunity to go into what's called the fellowship or residency forbearance, which didn't qualify before. They didn't realize they could go into an income driven plan based on their residency income that would create a low payment as well, just a few hundred dollars a month. So those people, they're counting that time frame, even though they didn't make payments in this new waiver that came out. So a lot of people qualified under that. Okay. Yeah. yeah multiple, it's a big subject all in itself. Yeah, <laughs> I think most of our investors, I mean, I guess every dollar counts, right? But 10, 10, 20 grand is not too much. That's like a fraction of some of these guys yeah. one year, but we have a lot of doctors and people with multiple degrees, grad school, doctor degrees. So maybe that second one is a bigger thing for them to yeah. get with you on. For that, sure. That you, doesn't you know, affect most of my clients. So along, along those lines, like I, I get hit with this podcast, all kinds of random people hit me up for these financial tools or these crazy like legal entity schemes. And it's always done by a, like a, not a lawyer or a, but they call them like legal promoters is what they call them. But anyway, like these guys will hit me up. And one of these ones were like, there's a scheme where like to get that 10 year thing you're mentioning, work for yeah. a nonprofit, they would have, they would create a nonprofit legal entities, even though they were working for their for-profit job, but they were using the shell company to, and they're sending these up for these clients and claiming it was working. And as soon as I heard that, I just ignored them. But have you heard of that thing? Sure. There are circumstances where you can, instead of working for a nonprofit, you can own your own nonprofit and it qualifies. You still have to put 10 years in. And you also have to prove that's your major source of income. And so it's, there are ways of doing that. Creating a shell account or what, some of that sounds a little shady. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing there, but there are ways to qualify for that 10 year forgiveness if you, your company and you own a nonprofit, but it's, there are requirements that must be met in order to do that. Uh, yeah. Clever, but I was maybe work with the professionals and definitely get a comfort letter from the lawyer doing it. Right. For sure. Yeah. I would definitely do your due diligence before you commit to something like that. Yeah. I'm not advocating for that. And that's why it's, you get what you pay for on the podcast scene. It's free. Yeah. Diverge on the topic. The topic that we want to specifically go down today is you're having a lot of your clients apply for home loans, right? And then the mortgage lenders, what the heck is this big student loan debt? Sure. With, with the mortgage lender, traditionally with any type of loan, in addition to your credit score, what's important to them is your net income to debt ratio or student loan debt ratio or any debt for any type of loan. And a typical loan, whether it be a home loan or a car loan or a personal loan, your payment is determined based on amortization math, right? A, a loan math is typical. You have X amount of dollars you owe at such and such an interest rate over a certain amount of time, and that creates a payment that pays the loan off during that time. And you can use that as a qualified monthly expense. For example, if you have $100,000 at 6.8%, you're looking at a payment of probably 1100 bucks approximately per month on a 10-year loan term, which is what most student loans default to before you do anything to them. 
for borrowers who owe a lot more and they make yearly, this can get them, make it more difficult for them to get a home loan. You may have an 800 on your credit score, but you may owe $300,000 in student loans and only make $100,000 a year. And the mortgage lenders go look at this and go, how are you going to afford, if you have a $300,000 loan, we don't understand how you're going to afford our mortgage payment. And because your payment, we'll assume is probably around $3,000 a month. Nowadays, mortgage lenders, more and more of them, not all of them, but a good portion, an increasing portion of them are taking into account what the borrower's payment is based off of the income driven program that qualify for. So let's say you have that same situation where someone makes 300,000 a year and they, or they owe $300,000 in federal student loan debt and they make $100,000 a year. Instead of having a $3,000 payment to pay that loan off in 10 years, their payment may only be 700 bucks a month based on their income. And that program itself that creates that payment is based on their debt to income ratio, basically. So if their income goes down, so does their payment. Their income goes up, so does their payment proportionally. Now that mortgage lenders are getting onto this, they're starting to accept that qualified payment in the income-driven programs as the monthly expense for their student loan. So in other words, what it allows borrowers to do is to get approved for the home loan, even if they owe three or four or five times what they actually make yearly, because their monthly payment is a reflection of their income, not a reflection of the size of the loan. So they can get approved despite having a huge amount of student loan. It's great to hear that lenders and bankers, more importantly, underwriters are using real world or things that make sense. Similarly, what we see on our side is like investors will get key ones from in real estate investments and real estate investments. One of the reasons we do them is we get huge amounts of first year losses, which is comes from the depreciation or passive losses or which is the paper losses. But for a lot of the problem is for a lot of the bankers, especially when you're buying your basic home mortgage, they don't have the financial education to understand that these K-1s isn't showing that somebody invested in a bad deal that lost a whole bunch of money in the first year. It's just the paper loss and haven't figured that one out yet. So they're definitely ahead in your arena for that. But nobody made a YouTube video for the mortgage underwriters and the mortgage brokers to understand this one. So we're still in the dark ages here. But Right. For sure. The bankers are smart, but unfortunately, they are like bean counters. And there's a difference between having a smart kid and a financially educated. And they're a little bit, they can be rigid and old school a little bit. We're based on traditional, when it comes to student loans, based on traditional loan map. I mean, student loans don't work anything like a traditional loan. They're the, the opposite of them, especially when we're talking about the forgiveness programs and the income driven programs. You know, where a traditional loan, your cost of that loan, basically your principal plus interest over time, right? That's the three variables of loan math. Whereas a student loan, your total cost of that loan and your monthly payment aren't based on that at all. They're based on cumulative payments plus potential taxes owed on the forgiveness. So it's a completely different equation. And the more, five, 10 years ago, it was almost impossible to get a home loan if you were upside down on student loan debt. But now as they become more and more aware of how they work, how these programs work and how student loans work, they're starting to actually, the underwriters are starting to allow these things to go through. Going through working with the lender, is any like tips or best practices to walk them through this? Or Yeah, number one, you need to interview the mortgage lender. You need to find out if they accept the income-driven repayment programs of student loans when determining the monthly debt-to-income ratio. 
that in factoring in their student loan debt. And if they don't know what you're talking about, when you ask them that, that's your answer. No. <laughs> but so a lot they, of like, like you know. dentists or doctors say, oh, we should go to this guy because they have like special doctor loans. Sure. That's there's, there's nothing, none of the such. It's just these mortgage brokers just are able to use the income driven repayment program to write a guidelines. It's just, it's not like it's. Yeah, those are targeted for doctors. Doctors receive special privileges for a regular refinance a lot of times too, because they historically doctors have, there's a better chance a doctor is going to pay back a student loan than a teacher. So these are things that an actuarialist knows. So the companies will corner those markets, those sectors and say, okay, we, if we just deal with this type of client or this career, we have a greater, we can promote that person as then there's a better chance they'll get approved. But also, yes, for physicians, especially in residency and whatnot, where they're only making 60 grand as a resident or 70 or 80 as a fellow, and they owe $500,000 in student loan debt, you can demonstrate what the payment is going to be based on their income versus what the balance of the loan is. They can use the same tools, but the doctor loans also is its own product really as well. Yeah. And maybe you're not the guy to ask this, but my understanding is Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac backed loans by the government are like the best loans one. Can, is those doctor loans still a type of those Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans? Just a I don't certain... believe so. Yeah. No, I believe their own private product. I don't think they're a part of that, but, but in that, I, that is going to be outside of my area of expertise, yeah. but I know that they have certain advantages for doctors, but they're, they're going to be more familiar with the income driven plans more, more likely because it's very common for physicians to work for nonprofit or government agents. So often for the, for the U the university or for the hospital, which are typically nonprofits. So they're in the programs quite a bit benefit them. Now, I give the example, ER doctors, for example, or um, they typically work for contracting groups and not directly the hospital. So they don't usually qualify for public service loan forgiveness. And so the income driven programs don't make as much sense for them. They usually make as much as they owe and so forth. Whereas a radiologist, for example, that has five years of residency and two years of fellowship, um, and then they usually do work for nonprofits, their situation is totally different. They may owe twice what they make, especially at first. And they qualify for all these programs so they can use them to demonstrate to the underwriter what their monthly payment is based on their income and not off of the amount of debt. So it improves, it lowers their payment, frees up cash flow, allows them to get approved for loans they otherwise wouldn't. But for generally for like outside of just that one industry for pretty much all people with student loans, you go to a lot of these personal finance blogs and then the right side of the page is cluttered with these like ads to refinance your student debt at a lower rate, you consolidate that. Like what's the catch there? Is, oh, is yeah. it like recourse, yeah. non-recourse? Or there has to be some catch. Yeah. So, it's a private student loan refinance. The one catch is that you forfeit all federal programs forever if you refinance the loan. So let's say SoFi or Common Bond or Credible, Splash, all these different companies. Yeah. And what Use my $100 filling. Just kidding, folks. That's just yeah, exactly. everybody does out there. Yeah. Yeah, they may even give you $500 or $1,000 just for getting approved. And those type of loans are great for people who are have good debt to income, right? So they make more than they owe. That's a, my ER docs are going to great example of that. They're not going to qualify for PSLF. Income-driven plans don't really make a whole lot of sense long-term. And they can afford the large $3,000, $5,000 payment or whatever it is. So they just refinance it, get a better rate and save money in the long run. 
But if you, let's say you're pediatrics or general and you owe several times, three or four times what you actually make, even as an ending, then programs are outstanding because your payment is based off of your income and not off the balance and it lowers your payment. But if you refinance that, well, now you've got a traditional payment. So let's say you have $500,000 in loans. Let's say they give you a 3% rate. This is the best rate you could possibly get right now due to inflation. You're still looking at a payment on a 15-year term of $4,000 a month, right? So they might not be able to afford that even though they're attending physicians because they've got other bills and they're only making 200K as an attending, as a peds or as general. So for those people, refinance is not a good idea. For borrowers who don't work for nonprofit, who make more than they owe, refinance can be a good idea. But once you do it, you can never go back and you forfeit all the federal safety net and benefits. With federal loans cancel upon death, there's a death benefit, heaven forbid. You have, it's always, if something goes wrong, you're always that, that's a huge yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. And then I don't know, people like to get lucky with the, gov- the government bailing people out or giving another freebie. You can use out on that. But completely. Yeah. So what if, here's a great example. Let's say you had, you put 10 years in a nonprofit, uh, you weren't in the correct program or whatnot. So you only have five years of qualified payments of PSLF. Then you refinance the loan. And then this new PSLF waiver that Biden came out with comes out. You don't qualify anymore because you refinance. Your loans aren't federal loans anymore. You're out of luck. If you kept the loans in the federal system and you didn't refinance, then you could potentially qualify for it. So the refinance immediately eliminates all forgiveness potential. Yeah, you got not just rate and term. And and maybe I'll use like a similarity with our investing. Like we get a lot of non-recourse debt and let's say it's at 6%. If I were to get a recourse loan where my whole personal financial being is on the line personally, I'm not going to go after, I'm not going to do it for 5%, maybe even not even for 4%. It's not all just rate and term. And that's what we're talking about here. But I guess for some situations where the person is debt adverse, they just want to pay off the debt, even though that may not be the best thing, especially for a sophisticated investor, but just what the layperson does. And they're going to extinguish that loan very aggressively in two to three years. They have the cash flow to do it. It might make sense. Yeah, exactly. It's an individual assessment. You know, that's why I always tell people is that whenever you hear one size fits all solutions for student loan repayment, it's wrong. It's going to be wrong. You need to do a full assessment, not only of that person's student loans and what they qualify for, but what their individual financial objectives are and how much money they're willing to pay, what their income growth is. All these things need to be forecast and take into account to determine whether it even makes sense to pursue those programs or whether they should refinance if they're giving up anything and what makes sense for them for whatever their particular goals are. And that varies. It's an individual snowflake. Everybody has a very unique individual situation and it gets very complicated, very fast, especially the bigger your debt gets. Yeah. It's not just rate and term. And I think that on my first glance at it, I was like, what's the catch? And thanks for pointing it out for us. In, in another one of your articles, you mentioned this infamously shady student loan servicer, customer yeah. service. What's that all about? No, the, uh, there's two different things. There's debt relief agencies, which are companies that like slam people in income driven plants without just promising a lower payment, regardless of whether it's the right thing to do for them. Just because you qualify for it doesn't mean you should be in it. The, then that's, those are free programs that with a little bit of effort. You can, you can figure out yourself. And then you have the student loan servicers. They're just poorly trained. I often say that you're a customer service rep at Nelnet or Mohila or Great Lakes or any of these loan servicers. Probably it'd be better to talk to them about 
TikTok and Instagram that it would be about their your student loans, even though that's what they're supposed to be answering. They're just call center reps. High, they have a high turnover. They, it's a very sophisticated topic. In fact, the loan servicer has on their website, it'll say, you should never have to pay for student loan advice, but you can find it here. And of course, everybody who hires me has already exhausted their attempts at getting the information through their loan servicer or through their own budsman even at the U.S. Department of Education and come up short. And then they come to me because the resources are not available for borrowers for student loans are not very good right now, which is one of the reasons I have a business. Yeah. And that's why I kind of brought you on. I've got a pretty good business. He's got a long clientele list. He offers just a quick pay by the minute type of consultation service. And overall, I've, I'm recovering cheapo personally. If you guys go to my cheapo page, simplepassivecashflow.com slash cheapo, you see all the crazy stuff I would do to just waste my time. But every time I look back and I've been changing my ways, every time I try to do something the cheap, easy, free way to save a buck, I got burned. And especially yeah. when you're dealing with this type of stuff, it's just don't be cheap. And plus, cheaper people tend to be not as fun and right. they, they not hang out at our events. too. Yeah, either. Right. You can tell when you're when you call or talk to these people that where it doesn't sound quite right or they don't quite sound knowledgeable or they don't answer questions directly. These are things that become obvious with a little investigation. <laughs> or I think what our investors will do or like some of the podcast listeners will do is they'll scour the internet, waste the entire evening, listen to a whole bunch of like uncurated podcasts about certain things, but it's never, certain times it goes past a threshold where it's more personal finance and personal based on your personal situation and you'll never get it. And I look back and like, I don't have very many regrets in life being relatively young, but I do look back in my 20s and there were a lot of evenings where I spent Googling a topic because I was too cheap to pay somebody yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know what I've noticed too, and this is kind of thinking people in business notice this over the years that I've been doing this for 25 years now. And the borrowers that are willing to pay my hourly are the ones that are ready to really do what's necessary to tackle their situation. And whenever, if you give out free information or whatnot, often those people are looking for handouts and not really willing to do the work. And I remember I used to give deals to people in special circumstances. They wouldn't follow through with what I told them they needed to do or needed to help them do. And because they just weren't committed to the process. Yeah. I heard something absurd the other day. That, like somebody said, oh, I have a CPA that does this certain type of return or this audit for free for me. How do they make money? Why are they doing that? It's probably right. because they need to build the reputation of their business because they don't have a reputation at this right. point. And you're the kind of the sucker who's going to help them build the stake and all. Content they need. Yeah. Examples. Yeah. I have, I had a friend of mine actually contact me and he, he called me out of the blue and like I hadn't talked to him a long time. He didn't really actually want to talk to me. What he wanted to do was give me this, tell me about what he was his startup was all about and then wanted me to give him a review a afterwards just so that and I'm like I can't give you a review for that I, I don't even yeah. know what you're about and, and you're gonna want to put not just me but my business as a reference there and I sorry buddy I can't do that but uh, you, you get a lot of the people searching for content and for for reviews and whatnot and yeah this is the worst one I call it the Trojan horse podcast there are so many garbage podcasts out there these days especially the ones that are geared towards budding entrepreneurs. Those are a dime a dozen, but these guys will create a podcast and then invite other entrepreneurs on to tell their story. 
But really all it is to build rapport with them for 15 to 20 minutes, make them feel like warm and fuzz inside. And then after the call, they pitch them on the service. It's something. Yeah. They pitch the guests. And like, man, this is where we've come to as a society. So yeah, Yeah. I've had that happen. But anyway, you find some gold here. And that's why we bring on Jan back. But if you guys want to book a call with him, student-loan-consultant.com. Any last common question you hear come up from folks in the last year or two since we've had you just to wrap things up or? Yeah, they do change over time because there are lately on the mortgage one is one of them. It's one of the reasons I wrote the blog because the, uh, a, I've been getting a lot more borrowers running into trouble because the bank won't accept a zero payment during the pandemic forbearance for no payments to 90% of the federal loans are in that. And I literally do conference calls with them and their mortgage lenders to get them into a qualified payment. We have to cancel the forbearance, put them into a repayment plan that the mortgage lender will accept and the lowest one that we can so that it, you know, it gives the borrower the greatest chance of getting approved, get them approved. And then I put them back into the forbearance after they close. That's, that's happened a lot lately. And that's why I wrote that. But also understanding the income driven repayment and PS waivers, which are very complicated and understanding how it applies to them, whether they qualify and get, if they can get approved for that forgiveness, obviously that's a, a strong topic now. And then everything in between, not everybody's taking advantage of those programs. And some people are wanting to know what, whether they should continue to pursue the program. And now that we're approaching the end of the pandemic forbearance, then payments are going to start to begin. So there's a lot more. I'll be getting very busy in the next coming uh, months as we approach the summer here when payments are about to begin and uh, people have to think about their student loans again. Yeah. So if you were one who thought you were super smart and cool for refinancing to a third party private loan servicer, you're not getting those COVID forbearance perks, right? Yeah, no, you're not. Yeah. And I, I'll read that from, I won't say the names, but very popular, well-known financial people say, you should refinance your loans now with such and such rate. It's, it's inappropriate for them to make that suggestion as a blanket suggestion. It's There are, I would say of the for every 20 consultations I give, I recommend private student loan refinance about once, about one out of 20 times. So yeah. it's for if you qualify for federal student loan or for private student loan refinance, you probably don't need it. And if you need it, you probably don't qualify. In other words, if you need it as a solution for your student loan problem, that means that the bank's not going to approve you because they're going to see that you can't afford your payment. And if you do qualify, well, good on you. That means your debt to income ratio is so strong that you can refinance at a great rate and you're not really a person who needs a super amount of help, I'll be glad to help you, but it's not, you're not in a critical situation or a situation that needs more instructed attention. But yes, refinancing, only do that when you're ready to commit. You know for sure that your income is going to be stable because if it goes downhill, you don't have the same resources you do in federal loans. You want to make sure that the rate is significantly better than what you're paying now. There's, it's only worth it if you get a much better rate because you're giving up all the safety nets and benefits of a forgiveness potential of a federal loan and uh, the debt benefit and anything else covers that. You want to make sure it's a good deal before you forfeit that. For, close this out, folks. Maybe a lesson learned here is never take financial advice or broke, like loan advice from a mortgage broker. Never listen to a real estate agent broker on which home you're buying because these guys all make money when you buy. And in some cases, I personally use a lot of third-party consultants, third-party underwriters to tell me what I need to know. 
Maybe also applies to you never listen to your friendly neighborhood syndicator either. But uh, anyway, that's hearsay and have a sauce of humor out there, guys. Have a great evening. We'll talk to you guys later.